Now, in 2017, uh, the country woke up to the news that a 50-year-old British Islamic State fighter had carried out a terrible suicide bombing in Iraq. Now, there was nothing strange about that because many UK citizens uh, went off to fight for ISIS. But what was shocking in this case was the name of the man. His name was Jamal Udin. Jamal Udin. You see, in 2010, the Blair government had fought tooth and nail to bring this man back from Guantanamo Bay, where he had been held as a detainee. And, but they did more than that. They also paid him as compensation for being in Guantanamo a million pounds. But seven years later, it was a suicide bomber for ISIS. You can imagine the media reaction at the time. It's not long ago, that was 2017. The country was in uproar. And for good reason. How can a man shown such grace abuse it to the point of becoming a suicide bomber? Everyone was appalled. You see, those who are shown tremendous grace are meant to be changed by that grace. And we would all agree that surely the greater the grace shown to us, the greater the change in our lives should be in response to that grace. But even as I told the story of Jamal Udin, you're thinking, wow, that's shocking. Who behaves like that? But are you different from Jamal? Yes, you, you are not a wannabe suicide bomber, but how are you responding to the grace of God that you have received in Jesus Christ that is far greater than what the British government showed Jamal Udin? Infinitely greater. When God looks at your life, just over the last year, what does he make of it? Do you think his assessment is that you are growing in appreciating his grace or you are growing in being called to his grace, even bored by his grace? This evening we are in Luke chapter 1, verse 5 to 25. This is a well-known passage in the Bible. It is a story of the angel Gabriel bringing good news to the priest Zechariah. We, we, we read it every Christmas, right? Why is this story here in the Bible? Well, this story is in the Bible to teach us about how the coming of Jesus in the world has brought the grace of God to his people by first giving the gift of John to the people of Israel to prepare them for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the theology, isn't it? John, the forerunner to Jesus, heralding the grace of God in Christ. But it isn't just the theology. There's a response to that truth. Because this truth is teaching us how we should respond to this grace of God that has come to us in Jesus. It shows us the wrong response and the right response to this grace. And so this is what I want to look at. Welcoming the grace of God. Or, how, or even just asking us a question. How should we respond to the grace of God that has been unleashed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, to answer that question, please look with me at, there at Luke chapter 1, uh, verse 5 to 25. There are four lessons 
Uh, that really together gives us the answer to that question. How should we respond to the grace of God in Christ? And I, uh, you could have benefited, I think, from having a, 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 the outline in front of you. But follow me closely if you can, by God's grace. Two, um, four, four lessons. The first lesson is this. Everyone needs the grace of God. That's the first lesson we learn from this passage. Everyone needs the grace of God. Luke starts this narrative like a great narrator of a historical documentary. You know, what he does first is that he sets the context, the context of where we are, by telling us the location and the time of events. Look at verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. We, we are meant to pause there, aren't we? Because this is reminding us that we are in Israel, and at this moment in Israel, the Romans are in charge, and they have appointed a puppet king, Herod, was an Edomite to rule the Jews. This is a horrible time to be Jewish. Herod is a monster. This is a man who has already murdered two of his brothers-in-law, two of his brothers, and uh, of his brothers-in-law, and even his beloved wife and a mother, who is of course Herod's mother-in-law. So you can imagine just how bad it is. God's people are suffering terribly under his rule. But you see, when we come to this narrative, Luke's immediate concern is not immediately with Herod or the nation at large, but with one Jewish family. Because let's read on verse 5 to 6. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Elizabeth and Zechariah are the exact opposite of King Herod. First of all, they are Jews. He's an Edomite. They are God-fearing. He's lawless, right? And they are not just Jews. They are part of the priesthood. The religious aristocracy, we might call it. These are the people who know the Bible and they keep it from cover to cover. But there's a huge problem for them. A huge, huge problem here. Their small family is coming to an end. They have no future. They have come to the end of the line because God has not given them a child. Look at verse 7. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. The same phrase is used for Anna and Simeon. These are, and Anna is in her 80s, I think. So, so this is, they are old. You see, at this time in Israel, many people believe that not having a child is a result of some sin in your life. And this is what some Christians today also believe. You hear that. But this passage settles everything, isn't it? It reminds us that thinking like that is wrong because this passage reminds us no one has a right to have children. You can be godly like Zechariah and Elizabeth tick all the boxes and still have no kids. We may have question marks on, 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 on Zechariah's heart as we, as we come to it, but there's no question mark on Elizabeth's heart. She's a godly woman. 
And she's at the heart of this barrenness. Right? And so you see, this is the first truth that Luke wants us to learn as we come to this passage. He's teaching us that God does not treat us based on our goodness. None of us deserve any blessings from God. All of us need the grace of God. And we need it because all of us are sinners. There is nothing in you and I we can do to get God to bless us. The idea that you can do this and that and you get a blessing, that's heresy. The idea that you can keep the laws and get to heaven, that's heresy. All of us need His grace. And you know what? We don't just need His grace to become followers of Jesus, right? We also need His grace to live out the Christian life. Just as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, says Paul to the Colossians. How did you receive Him? By grace. So how should you walk in Him? By grace. As John Newton in his hymn, Amazing Grace, which we'll sing at the end, reminds us, he says this, Through many dangers, toes, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. That's the gospel. It's grace from A to Z. We need the grace of God every day, you see, because like Elizabeth and Zechariah, all of us experience barrenness or fruitlessness in many areas of our lives. We all have real needs in our lives. We have longings for areas of our lives to change. We long for God to bless us. And this is why we pray all the time as believers. And the good news of this passage is that God is willing to pour his grace on our lives day by day as the hymn we sang just said. And this is the second lesson we learn here. So the first lesson is that we need, everyone needs the grace of God. Well, the second lesson is that God gives grace to the undeserving. God gives, we might even say, unexpected grace to the undeserving. Let us see this as we rejoin our narrator, Luke. Now, if we are watching what Luke is describing here up to verse 7, if we are watching this on a TV screen, right, we can see that Dr. Luke has switched his camera, right, from looking at the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth there, just them existing by themselves without a child running around, right? He switched the camera from there now to the temple in Jerusalem. This amazing architecture, this magnificent complex, a 35-acre wonder, the largest sacred enclosure at this time in the Roman world, five times the area of the Acropolis in Athens. It is tall, it is majestic. Five times in height, I believe, or at least the current dome that's built there would be at the base we at the base of, of the height of the temple. That's how tall and majestic it, it was. And this temple, as we see it on the TV, as it were, it is gleaming of white marble and pure gold. This is the third temple to be built after the first temple by Solomon and the second temple by Zerubbabel. And the temple has been renovated now by puppet Herod. 
And as we look at this, as it were, if we're watching this on TV, we can see right in the middle of this temple, in the holy place, in the middle of this amazing piece of human engineering, we see our man Zechariah there. He's left home, he's now reported for duty. And here's what Luke now tells us there in verse 8 to 10. Now why was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty? According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. That is chosen randomly. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So Zechariah has been chosen by a seemingly random draw to be the priest of the dead in the temple. That's significant, right? This actually only happens once in a lifetime of any of those who could serve as priests. So this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. He has come to enter the sanctuary and to burn incense. And now as he's praying, as he's doing this, as he's inside uh, this holy place, the holy place burning incense to God, what's happening is that the people are outside, right? And they are praying. So what we've got here, as we're seeing this, we can see Zechariah in the temple inside the holy place, and outside people are praying. Okay? And effectively what Zechariah is doing is, what Zechariah is doing symbolically burning incense, the people are leaving it out as they offer prayers to God. He is the priest for the day. Now, the holy place where Zechariah is at this moment is a little dark. And it's full of smoke because it's burning incense, right? And then all of a sudden, Luke tells us, Zechariah is aware of another presence that's alongside him. Let's read on verse 11 to 12. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. And fear fell upon him. As Zechariah sees this angel, something inside Zechariah has made him feel this man is no man. And he is terrified. But the angel quickly assures, reassures him, doesn't he, with good news. Let's read on verse 13 to 14. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And then verse 12 says this, And you will have joy and gladness. We just stop there. This is extraordinary news. God has sent his angel, and this angel is declaring a message from God. It is saying, God has heard your prayers, and he has power to create new life, and he will give this life to you and Elizabeth. Now, the angel here, just as a side note, is teaching us something very important, especially in our time, that we need to remember. The angel is teaching us that every child born into this world is a gift from God. We might even say every life comes from God and returns to God. No child is an accident. And that this is why every human life is valuable. You see, the world has no way of grounding human life. Why should one life matter more than another? Or they would say, right? Why should, why should your life be the same? They would say, one life can matter more than another. They would say that because they have no basis for what we might call equality, of why every life matters, right? But we have 
Not only are we made in the image of God, Genesis 1 to 3, we know that life itself comes from God himself. Every child being born, God has made a decision to send that child in the world. And that includes children who die in the womb. And yet we see here that even though every baby is special, baby John is extra special. He's a special baby. He's extra special. I say that because he is a special baby, as every baby, but except he's also on a special mission to prepare Israel for the Messiah. Let's read on verse 14 to 17. This is what the angel says. And you have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Gabriel is speaking. Verse 15. For he that is John will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And you will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and you will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What is Gabriel saying? He's saying a lot of things. And we haven't got the whole, the, the whole evening to unpack it. But essentially what is Gabriel is saying to Zechariah is this. God has lavished his grace on you, Zechariah, uh, and your wife, Elizabeth. You are going to get what you have been praying for. You are having a baby. And your child will be no ordinary baby. The hand of the Lord will be on him. He will be a prophet. Not just any prophet, a great prophet. God, in fact, the last prophet of the Old Testament period. The last prophet before the Lord Jesus Christ comes. The greatest prophet has ever lived according to the assessment of the Lord Jesus. God is going to use, John says the angel Gabriel, to bless the people of God by turning their hearts back to God. They are, they are, they are, they are rebellious people living under a rebellious King Herod, but God is going to start his work. They need God's grace, and God is on the move to give them this grace. The coming of John is going to be the beginning of God lavishing his grace on them. And you know what? This is why the angel has appeared to Zechariah in the temple and not at the home of Elizabeth and Zechariah. He could have done that, but he's come to the temple. Why? Because God is making a point. He is saying, I have come to this temple where my presence and glory has long departed. Ichabod. A temple without the ark of the covenant. I am coming to restore my people to myself. Baby John is at the heart of my plan to serve them because he's coming to prepare them for my arrival, the arrival of God's King, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke is saying to us, God knows we need grace. And he has come in Jesus to give grace to sinners like us. You know, our God is not stingy. This passage is reminding us that he's the God of all grace. You know, if you're a true follower of Jesus this evening, you have received this grace of God in Jesus. 
You know that. Now this is reminding you to not forget just how blessed you are to be in Christ. Beloved, we must never get tired of hearing about the grace of God. We must never forget that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ is not poor in grace. He is overflowingly rich in grace towards you who are in Christ Jesus. And he never treats you as your sins deserve. You know, God has a relentless desire to stoop down to your level, to take pity on you and rescue you, to give himself generously to you in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. God has a relentless desire not just to save you, but to forgive you, redeem you, and deliver you from evil. Right? Oh, that is amazing. But much more, to enjoy you as his beloved child in Jesus. You know, God doesn't just give you a bit of grace in Jesus. He is full of abundant and overflowing grace. The Apostle Peter reminds us. What is God's worldview? Have you ever asked that question? It's grace. It's grace. Everything God does is motivated by his grace to his precious children in Christ. Now, I know you know all of this, and maybe you're hearing this evening on a very hot day, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's interesting, I can just about keep up, right? You know all of this, I know that. I hope I've not said anything new. I hope I've just reminded you what you already know. You know it. We, we, we are Grace Baptists, I mean, that's the name. I mean, that's, grace is part of, I hope, part of our fundamental way in which we think about the world. You see, you know grace, but your problem is not your lack of knowledge. Your problem is that you suffer from grace amnesia. You know, when life gets very difficult or you experience material blessings, you tend to quickly forget about the grace of God. You are prone to wonder, prone to wonder into unbelief. And this unbelief and doubt about the grace of God stops us from enjoying the amazing grace of God in Jesus. And this is the third lesson we learn here. So, what is the first lesson we've seen from John? The first lesson is that everyone needs the grace of God. We need it. And the good news is, that's the second truth. God gives grace, unexpected grace, to the undeserving. So what's the problem? The problem is that our unbelief stops us enjoying his grace. And that's the third lesson. Our unbelief gets in the way. It doesn't cut us from grace of God. If we are truly in Jesus, we continue to live under his grace. But it stops us from enjoying, reveling in his grace. Reaping the full benefit of being under his grace. Let's rejoin Zechariah to see this point. So Zechariah has heard the greatest news of his life on the greatest day of his life. You know, when Zechariah is in that temple, first of all, when he arrives, I'm imagining he's like, wow, I've long waited for this. It's the greatest day of his life. And he's just received the greatest news now from the angel. He's in the holy temple. And he has received news from the holy angel. So the question is this. How is he going to respond to this message of sensational grace? 
We, we expect him to grab this news with joy and delight, don't we? That's what we do. We expect him to grab joy and delight. And if we're reading this account, what happens next would shock us. We are so familiar with this text, we, 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 we don't take in the weight of what's going on. But if we're reading this for the first time, what happens next is shocking. Look at verse 18, as after the angel speaks. And Zechariah said to the angel, this is his response, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Zechariah is saying to the angel, I am not sure about this. I need more proofs. I need more proof that what you're really saying, yes, I know you just appeared from nowhere, but I, I, I need to know, and yes, you've got this news about the, my, my son being great somehow in God's big plan, but I want more information, more than that, right? I need to be confident what you're really saying will happen because my situation, you know, tells me it can't. Now, to whom much is given, much is expected. Of all the people in the temple, and I would say of everyone in Israel, Zechariah should know better. He is a godly man, we were very right. He has read his Bible. He knows about Abraham and Sarah and what God did for them. He knows the story of the Manoah family in Judges. He knows of Elkanah and Anna. This is a godly man. He knows that God has in the past given children to childless couples when it has pleased God to do it. He knows that nothing is impossible with God, at least he's read it. And just now the angel has reminded him that God still cares for his people. This baby isn't just coming from, for Eliza and Zechariah. The baby is coming as part of God's plan for Israel. And yet he asks the angels... He asked the angel, the angel of the Lord of all people. He says, how can I be sure of this? Now, when Gabriel hears this, he's not impressed with the answer, is he? Look at verse 19 to 20. Here's how he responds. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold... You will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. You know, if you are reading, again, we are so familiar with this. But if you are reading this, coming at it afresh, and, and you're trying to get a sense, what is Gabriel's tone here? I mean, you can almost hear it, isn't it? As he says this, what Gabriel is saying to the Christ is, you've been praying about this. And God has now answered your prayer. He has not just answered you, he's given you more than you have prayed for, more than you have ever dreamed. You're not just getting a ch any child, you're getting a prophet. And so Gabriel says, Zechariah, you're not just doubting me, you are doubting God. And for this, God has had enough from you. God has had enough. Keep quiet now. You'll be silent for nine months. Keep quiet and watch God do his work. 
Now, notice that God is not withdrawing the blessing from Zechariah. Even keeping quiet is God's grace to Zechariah. God is still going to bless him. His promises cannot be stopped by men, even our unbelief. What God is doing is, is disciplining Zechariah. The unbelief of Zechariah now means that Zechariah is not going to revel in the moment of blessing. Zechariah can't tell people, we're having a baby. <laughs> His mouth is closed. In fact, quite the opposite. Not only can he not revel in it, it's now covered in shame. Right? You see, for Zechariah to be struck down in the temple, well, he has become a curse. No one with deformities is allowed to enter the holy place. And yet, here is a priest coming out there, dumb. It is a moment for him as a priest filled with shame. Look at verse 21 to 22. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. What's happening here? What's happening? What's happening is that Zechariah's unbelief has ruined the greatest day of his life. It has stopped him from enjoying this amazing moment of God's grace. Right? And the first thing that this passage is reminding us here is that you can be a very religious person on the outside, but without true trust in God, but you can, well, you can be a very religious person on the outside, but you can also be a person at the same time be without true trust in God. You can look oh well from the outside. And everybody thinks you're a pillar, a theological pillar, a, a, a walking reformed concordance. And yet in your heart, you can hide unbelief. You see, the problem with Zechariah is, is that he's a religious naturalist. He believes in God. But he thinks for all God's power, there are things God can't do. Like giving an old woman a baby. Yes, Zechariah knows the Bible. But there is this inner naturalism, we might say, in him that he can't shake off. Evolution hasn't yet arrived in full force at this time, but this naturalism is still there. He thinks that somehow God must bow to nature. In his world, old people only have grandkids, not their own children, after a certain time. And we can imagine Zechariah thinking to himself, I am now past my cell by death. Why would God give me this anyway? I am too old to raise an ordinary child, let alone a prophet. I mean, why would God let me go around and chase a toddler at Danson Park in my 80s? I mean, I mean, why would he give me such a responsibility? The problem with Zechariah, you see, is that he has cut God down to the small size of his experiences. This is the inner sin of unbelief. As dear Carson says, it degodes God. It cuts him down to the confines 
of our experiences. And many of us sadly are like Zechariah. You believe in God, but you live like God is subject to nature. You are skeptical sometimes of his power in your life. Think about the people you have prayed for to be served or restored to God. Family members, friends at work and in your neighborhood. Is it not true that there are some people actually that you have just stopped praying for? You prayed for them at one point, but you stopped praying for them. In some cases, you're still praying for spiritual fruit, but you're not doing it with any confidence, any, any, any sense of expectancy that God can save my child. God can save that rude neighbor. God can restore that brother who used to be so regular in the church. You're praying, but you're praying with unbelief and doubt in God. And you know, I believe God has brought you this evening to remind you to trust his power to bring life from dead situations. Hope against hope like Abraham, God is saying. Trust him. Yes, God by his grace does not give us everything we ask for. Praise the Lord for that. Because some of the things we ask for are completely not what we even want. <laughs> Ultimately. And God knows they are not good for us. Right? God doesn't always give us what we want. He knows best. Father knows best. But we must not confuse the fact that God doesn't give us, the fact that we, 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 God doesn't give us everything with the idea that because God won't give me everything, well, I don't need to trust God to pray for anything. We, we, we must never fall in unbelief that he does not care or the issue is too hard for him. You see, unbelief squanders God's grace in our lives. And here's a key point here. Not just in our lives, but in the lives of others. Have you noticed what has happened here? Have you noticed what's was lost out because of Zechariah's doubt? Let's read on verse 22 to 23 again there. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. You see, normally what is meant to happen is that after the priest comes out of the holy place, they are meant to give Heron's blessing. That's found in Numbers 6, verse 24 to 26. Right? But Zechariah cannot do it. He can't pronounce Aaron's blessing. He can't bless the people. And even worse... He is not even able to tell them about what the Lord is about to do. The amazing news that the angel has brought. He, he can't communicate this amazing message of grace to the people. You see, the, the, the unbelief of Zechariah has robbed others of the opportunity to enjoy and revel in the grace of God. All of this because Zechariah is a religious naturalist. He has, he has limited God. And also because his unbelief is rooted in self-focus. You know, Zechariah here is showing us that unbelief is self-focused. Zechariah is an individualist. He only thinks about me and my wife, me and my family, and our problems, nothing more. He can't see that God is at work 
through the blessings and challenges in his family's life for something bigger. His, his blindness to the ultimate bigger picture of God has actually diminished the priesthood. Because the priests are there to think about God's people. And this is a danger for us, beloved. Self-focus. Thinking God is only in the business of me and my family. We cannot be used of God if we are self-focused or individualistic. God is about his kingdom. He's about his people. He's about his church. Not merely individual believers. Your, your marriage matters. Your family matters. Your raising of kids matter. But God's plan is bigger than that. If that's what you think God is focused on, delivering you a good marriage, you are completely mistaken. He will give you if you submit to him according to the scriptures. But his plan is far bigger than that. You see, your service to God is always going to be shallow if it's always about me and my family. God wants you to see a bigger purpose, the kingdom of God in this world. And so we need to prayerfully reflect on this truth, especially those of us here who are going through barren or unfruitful moments in our lives. Not to say childlessness, but all kinds of barrenness, spiritual barrenness, social barrenness, right? Challenges, areas of unfruitfulness. You see, the risk of self-focus is actually higher in times of suffering. Those who are going through a difficult situation are more generally self-focused than others who are not going through those. You see, Zechariah sees his barrenness as just our issue. It's remarkable. It's a big issue for them as a family, but God has broken in and he's saying, look, your barren is not about you and your wife. This is a big issue for the church of God in time. I want to use this issue. Zechariah can't see his problem as an opportunity for God's work. The problem has made him become inward rather than expectant and even eager to, to allow God to use that problem as an avenue to bless his people. I wonder what setback are you facing at the moment? What challenging situation? Your marriage? A relationship? Unwanted singleness? Parenting difficulties? Are you going through bad health at the moment? Are there struggles at work? Are you in financial difficulties perhaps? The question for you this evening is simple. Yes, you are in a moment of what we might call barrenness. But how are you using your difficulty? How are you offering up your problem as an opportunity to God? Are you doing that? Or are you just squandering your current situation? Is your life simply self-pity? Wallowing in the problems, not recognizing that God isn't just after, after using you when you're doing all right. He wants to use you right there for the sake of his kingdom. Some of the, uh, of the greatest work God has done in this world has been done when people have faced deep, deep suffering. Show me a servant of God in the scriptures who never went through a deep pity. Deep war, as it were. Deep pity, I meant to say. We all need grace from God.
and God gives grace to the undeserving. That's the second truth. But the problem, as we've just been seeing, is that like Zechariah, unbelief stops us from enjoying His grace. It shrinks our lives. It makes us self-focused. It drowns us in self-pity even to the point that we are no longer effective for the kingdom of God. We are no longer functioning as an avenue through which God works his grace through. God wants your problem. That very problem is the thing God wants to use to grow you deeper in being an avenue of grace. Maybe that changes how you pray, isn't it? That changes how we pray. We need to learn to respond to God's grace. But how should we respond? That's the final point. How should we respond? Well, we must do what Mrs. Zechariah does. And I'll be quick. We must welcome the grace of God. Right? We must welcome the grace of God. So everyone needs the grace of God. Point one, two, God gives grace to the undeserving. But our unbelief stops us from enjoying God's grace. So how then should we respond? Well, the the fourth and final point. We must welcome the grace of God. Let's go back to this narrative. Uh, After an extraordinary day, Zechariah goes home to his wife, doesn't he? And we are told that after years of longing for a child, Elizabeth is finally pregnant. Look at verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived... We should note here, by the way, that the miraculous pregnancy of Elizabeth has come in a natural way. She conceived. This is not a virgin birth like the birth of Christ. John's father is really Zechariah. Now, that's in passing. But we need to keep that in mind because we're going through a loop. But we're already getting a sense that God is going to do something bigger. This is, a, this, is a, this, is a, this is a forerunner miracle, we might say. That's in passing. The main point is that God has kept his promise. Our God always keeps his promise. He has shown grace to the doubt in Zechariah and by extension to the people of Israel. Now, when Elizabeth finds out that she's pregnant, she does something curious. I think we could spend... Many minutes discussing this. We won't, but look at verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. Why has she done that? We could go through many theories why she's done that. I think, here's my best guess. I think she's avoiding having to explain to the people what happened to Zechariah until her pregnancy is really showing. So I take five months as when it it looks unavoidable, right? She wants to wait until the pregnancy is obvious for her to see. And then she can say to people, this is the reason why Mrs. Zechariah can't speak at the moment, right? That's my best guess. But whatever your theory, whatever your reason, there is no confusion about what Elizabeth does when the baby arrives. What does she do? She gives thanks to God. Look at this 24 to 25. Let's read on. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me 
to take away my reproach or shame among the people. You see, in Judaism, people look down on a woman who could not have a child. And some cultures still do that. So Elizabeth acknowledges, actually, what a godly woman. She acknowledges the treatment she has received from perhaps relatives or neighbors as cut deep into her heart. I've been suffering. I've been suffering. I've been living under the cloud of shame. She acknowledges that. But she doesn't end there. She now rejoices in the grace God has shown her. Notice how she says it. What a lovely verse this is, isn't it? Thus the Lord has done for me in the days. When he looked down on me. No. When he looked on me. She's saying people looked down on me. But my God who has every right to really look down on me. Has looked on me. He has shown me grace. Elizabeth is teaching us, this is how all of us are meant to react to the grace of God in our lives. We are meant to welcome it with full hands. Welcoming the grace of God means having this grateful heart to God that rests in his grace as Elizabeth is resting. There's still an element of trusting God here, uh, and she's still, because the baby isn't born yet. She's believing a boy is coming, and we'll see that when Mary visits her. She's trusting God, but she's And she's expressing thanks to God. And then what is she doing? She's publicly declaring this grace of God to others. Right? Look at verse 25. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. I think we must understand this as now that she's out in verse 24. Right? She's able to come out. She's now able to speak with neighbors. And she's pointing the neighbors to God, right? God is the one who's done this. It's not about me. It's not about Zechariah. Just look at him, right? It's not about him. It's God at work, right? We welcome God's grace in our lives when we've been changed by it by telling others about it. Has God saved you by grace? Is God pouring grace on your life day by day? Well, has he been good to you this past year? Through thick and thin. Can you say, yes, life has been hard, but I can see how God has looked on me. Well, if you can, then welcome his grace. Tell it out to God and tell it out to others. Tell God you are resting in grace and you're so thankful that he's your God. And make your daily prayers filled always with thanks. For his grace. That's how you're going to pray. Start with that all the time. But don't simply keep it between you and God. Tell others about it. Starting with your neighbor. Your friends at work. Share it out. Find opportunities to testify to what the Lord has done for you. And is currently doing for you in Jesus. And here's the point. If you remember anything from here. I believe the more we tell others about the grace of God the more God lavishes his grace on us more and more. Not as a reward, but because God wants people to hear of his grace. God wants people to hear of his grace. And I think your inability, your failure to declare his grace, I think quenches some of that experience of his grace. But if you just make yourself a mouthpiece, 
that declares the goodness of God, wow, that points to his glory, wow, he'll give more grace. And remember, it's not a reward, it's grace. So then, to conclude this evening, what have we learned this evening? Well, we have learned that everyone needs the grace of God, all of us. And praise God that God gives grace to the undeserving. But remember the problem we talked about. The problem is that like Zechariah, our hearts are skeptical. They are even bored of the grace of God. And as a result, we don't enjoy his grace as we should. What do we need to do? We need to learn from Elizabeth. We need to learn from Elizabeth to welcome the grace of God with prayerful and public gratitude to God like Elizabeth does here. Well, may the Lord help us to grow in reveling and welcoming the grace of God in our lives.